Episode 5, A Conversation with Mark Turatilli. Hello, and welcome back to the Keep Your Day Job. Um, we are back with another interview for the election edition here in the 2023 campaign. I am here today with Mark Turtilly. Hey, Mark, how's it going? All right, glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so, as I've as that was I've, the chair. Oh yeah, yeah, minus <laughs> the chair, right? Apologies for the squeaks. We've got a, a, a multitude of different noises during these interviews because we're, we're recording these in four seasons. So if you hear banging or grunting, it's not us. Those are the exercisers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. I know you've run a couple times. Um, you've ran for mayor. You, is this your first time running for council? Yes. Okay. So go ahead and give us give us an introduction. All right, so I'm, I'm Mark Turatilli. I first moved here in 1997 to go to ISU to uh, change careers. I had been working as an industrial automation technician with robotics and laser systems and things like that. And uh, along the way, I realized I'd wanted to get into education. My father was a teacher in the Chicago Public School System for his entire career. Uh, and it really became something that I got passionate about. So if you're going to be a teacher, you go to ISU. Uh, and yeah. So I came here, uh, met my wife here. We were married in 98. Uh, we spent some time here, moved to Danvers. I served on the council out there. I was a volunteer firefighter out there. Uh, really enjoyed it. I was working at Tremont for five years, teaching in, in their school system. And it was just getting really tough to make it on a teacher salary as a single income around here. We uh, both wanted my wife to uh, be a stay-at-home mom. So we started looking around and we moved to Philadelphia. I was working for a charter school out there for five years. The East Coast wasn't quite for us, and we really gave it some thought going, wow, we could go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, we could go anywhere in the country. We even looked at, uh, at other countries to go to, and we said, you know, we really kind of like Bloomington Normal. So we came back here in 2013. Uh, we were in Bloomington for one year and then moved into Normal, and we've been there since. I'm currently teaching at Illinois Wesleyan University. Uh, I also manage the makerspace over there mm -hmm. and uh, working on the development of the Petrick Idea Center, which is going to be a new residential makerspace facility on Wesleyan's campus that's going to promote entrepreneurship by having kind of cross-disciplinary, curated community of residents that can just get a bright idea, pop downstairs, work on it anytime, and uh, collaborate with resources within the campus and with the community as a whole. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I mean, I work at State Farm in the space of data, and uh, innovation is something that we're always trying to wrap our heads around. And I think especially when we think about the future of government, the ability to have an idea, proof that quickly with some sort of prototype, and then get it out into the wild yeah. and see whether or not it sinks or swims. Um, I think that's the future of the way we need to be making decisions. So, yeah, yeah. iterative thinking for sure. Yeah. And the, the, the iteration time is getting shorter and shorter. Absolutely. It's really, really amazing to watch. Yeah, well, well cool. It's, it's good to have that spirit as a candidate on the council, absolutely. So uh, we've got 10 questions here today, uh, sort of a, a myriad of topics, and we'll jump in with the one that I feel is most job interview specific. <laughs> Can you provide an example of a time in the past year when you received a piece of information that may have changed your thinking on an issue? Um, in the past year, I, I, I came up with this, and there were, I think there are three key ones I had. If you don't mind yeah, me going back go further, mm -hmm. I do have one from the past year. Um, the first one that came to mind was Rivian. Okay, there's that famous, you know, video, I mean, Mayor Coos put out that campaign against me that I had my statement up there uh, mm -hmm. opposing Rivian. What I was really opposed to was the deal that was taking money away from Unit 5, because that's partly why Unit 5 is in the situation that it's in. Mm -hmm. But after the cameras were off and the meeting had ended, I sat down and actually talked one-on-one -on -one with RJ for about 45 minutes 
And he told me, you know, where he was uh, getting his funding from, where he got his ideas from, what he was planning to do, how he was going to execute. And I said, wow, yeah, this sounds great. I, I think you've got a fantastic idea here. Mm -hmm. I still don't think you should be taking the school district's money because I think there's other ways that we could make this deal happen. Right. But absolutely, I believe in your company. I just think this was a poorly crafted deal by the EDC. So that was that was one of them. Uh, and unfortunately, there's no video of any of my supportive reviewing after sure. that. So that's what's out there. Um, another one was the uh, the trail crossing signs, the ones that are stuck in the middle of the road. Um, I live right by one of them, and I I'm you know I'm on video saying, hey guys, I think this is a great idea. Good. Mm -hmm. I've watched them do a lot more harm than good. Mm -hmm. I've seen them cause accidents because people aren't quite sure what to do around them. Uh, I've seen cars damaged, motorcycles. One guy went flying right over another car when he, you know, they've, they've wound up causing more problems than they've solved. And of course they get run over all the time as well. So my thinking on those has changed. But if you want to talk about the question with the past year, I think this most recent example uh, is the dispensary. So initially I uh, looked at it and said, well, they, the town thought very hard. There was a lot of furor a couple of years back about the first dispensary, and then, mm -hmm. so they crafted a map. Here's everywhere where you could go. Here are some of the parameters on how we're going to issue uh, special use permits. It shouldn't be near churches, but then, well, we kind of went around that and gave a special use permit anyway for the first one. So I said, well, here they are in front of the council. You've laid out the rules, and they've put in their work according to the rules that you've laid out, and here they are, and now you want to change the rules. I don't think that's right. That's confusing to the business community. It creates distrust. It sows dissent. Uh, you know, this is what you laid out. You need to stick by that. But then you have a lot of very concerted, very, um, you know, well-spoken public comment about that. Mm -hmm. And that does need to weigh into the equation. One of the biggest complaints that have, has been core to my campaign for the last six years is that the town doesn't respond well to public input, that they actively quash yeah. public opportunities to speak. So when you have the community speaking out so decidedly, then it warrants another look. Mm -hmm. So even though I think from a policy standpoint, okay, this should be done. If we have a problem with this issue, then let's talk about reframing the rules at another time. But when the public speaks up in that regard, that does need to be taken into consideration and say, okay, can we come back to the table? Is there another place? Is there another option? How can we mitigate this? Um, so that does weigh in and change my thinking on those things. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was a really interesting story, uh, the dispensary topic, because you're right. Like there's, there was a certain type of inconsistency there that one could argue is also in the story about those road signs, right? Because yeah. the confusion for me about those road signs are I need to abide by them because they're indicative of a state law, but they're not on every crosswalk. And at most crosswalks, people don't stop for them. And I've never seen someone pulled over. So it creates this, you know, this really unnecessary gray area, to your point, that does cause accidents. It causes harm for both people using the trail and people trying to drive on the streets. Yeah, I, I mean, on paper, it sounds great. We want people to be safe. We love our trail. I, I love the trail. It's one of the reasons we chose the house that we do. We're, yeah. we're only one yard away from it, um, and we're, we use it all the time. But we live in a community where people are always waving each other on anyway, mm -hmm. and I think the signs just wind up creating more confusion. I agree. I agree. And I think to the dispensary, what was so interesting about that to me was, you know, to your point, if this business is following the rules and applying in a designated space for that type of business, then I don't know 
how much the city wants to weigh in without changing the rules. And I also think that the public comment is important because I don't know how or who is in charge of designing that corner, but that Chick-fil-A space, yeah. if you are a customer of Chipotle, good luck getting yeah. in there, right? Like yeah. it's, it's a nightmare the way that they the, put that The together. traffic argument didn't have traction for me, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> you know, because look at I look at Chick-fil-A and yeah. the, at the traffic that's there. It's, yeah. You know, and... What you're really saying is we don't want a business that's going to generate traffic. Right. I, of course you want. That's the mm -hmm. economic activity. So yeah. I, I don't buy that. And you could have possibly redesigned the flow through that parking lot or sure. something like that. So that to me, that wasn't the issue. Yeah. Um, do you think, so the, the town voted against it. Do you think that was the right decision? Given the, the, the public statement, yes. I feel bad for the the people who want to develop this. I feel yeah. they got caught in the middle. I think yeah. the problem was that this shouldn't have been forwarded to the council in the first place. I think there was a failure earlier in the chain mm -hmm. where there was still time, because I know they have a limited time on their, on their license with the state, that they could have sat down and said, this probably isn't an optimum location. Right. Um, just because it's zoned, this is a special use case, doesn't mean you're guaranteed. So let's look at some other opportunities. Yeah. That should have happened much earlier in the process. Um, and, and where was public comment then? It wasn't really well advertised either in that regard. So, right. Yeah, I hadn't uh, heard about it until it got. Yeah, to the and, and you know that's one of my consistent complaints is that there, there's got to be more than just the letter of the law in terms of public transparency. You know, mm -hmm. we have our stuff announced 48 hours in advance because that's all they can get away with. Yeah. That's that's the minimum. Well, why can't you do it a week in advance? There's other communities. Uh, the school board is one of them actually that says we're going to actually take a couple of meetings on this. The first meeting, we're not actually going to vote on an issue. We're just going to discuss it. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll, we'll bring it out. The public can become aware of it. And then the next meeting, now that it's been out there and people can research it, they can come back to the meeting where we're going to vote on it with an informed opinion and talk about it then. To me, that's a much healthier way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but normal doesn't want to operate that way yeah. with the current council. Well, and this is where we all have an opportunity to vote here in April. So... <laughs> Let's, uh, let's next pivot to some local issues. And I'd say these next three or four questions have all been influenced by the national dialogue, in my opinion. Um, so let's dive in deep to the issue of the flock camera, because this story caught my interest for a number of different reasons. Um, in a way, it is somewhat smart city. There's a big brother connotation, surveillance state. Uh, there's an expense factor, albeit a little, little like minimal. Uh, and then there's the issue of, of improving policing itself. Uh, what was your perspective on this issue? And I know you did not vote on this because you're not a member of the council yet, but what are the type of things that you would have factored into your thinking to help you make this decision? Well, you just listed <laughs> all of them. I mean, that's, that's actually really the, the crux of, of the decision-making process in there. Um, one of the first things that I looked into is, all right, who is Flock Camera? Who is Flock Safety? And you realize this is one of those entrepreneurial startups who had a, a really cool tech ideas, like, heck, cell phones are amazing now. And so they literally took cell phones and converted them with a little bit of uplink and some AI to recognize license plates. So on the one hand, you go, okay, they're in a few communities. This is really essentially still a startup. Mm -hmm. How sustainable is that? Is this the best company to be going with, even this, if this is a good idea? So there was some looking into that. They seem to be on their feet and gaining momentum and we're early into their cycle. Um, Okay, so that's one of the factors yeah. to look at. I would say, okay, there's, you know, it's, it's a sort of a yellow light. It's a little risky. They're still young and not well-developed, but they seem to be having good momentum. 
Um, my initial reaction is to bristle at some of the Big Brother aspects yeah. of, a, of something like this. However, I look at what's the, uh, what's the equivalent of that. In a low-tech environment, you could have somebody on a street corner just looking at license plates. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a plate on your car, you're on a public thoroughfare, you have no expectation of privacy in that regard. Um, so in that sense, well, it's kind of an acceptable use. It starts to rub you a little uncomfortable, but okay. So then I look at what's the benefit of it. And uh, I, you know, I looked at some of the comments from our police department in Normal, some from Bloomington, because they have them as well, and then I have other friends in law enforcement in other places in the country. And the overwhelming response is that these things are fantastic. And that's been borne out in the short time we've had them. There have been plates, you know, we've got alerts on certain vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, and they, those cars are, are pinging, they're finding them. I mean, that's a really effective tool. Yeah. Uh, so for me, in that sense, on balance, it comes out, this is an incredibly effective tool. Now, it also lends itself to the possibility of abuse because now you can track plates, you can track people's movements, mm -hmm. and who's to say that somebody who was less scrupulous couldn't sit down and say, I wonder where my ex is going, yeah. and look that data up. So the real issue for me in normal was, I think, that the protocols that we have in place are kind of weak, the oversight of that. Okay. Uh, there was a very significant ask of just simply blind trust. This is our police force, they're sworn to uphold the law and so on. And, and that's true, and I'm not trying to denigrate the police force, it's just that it's a human institution. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you can look at other places, you can look at even, unfortunately, in normal. And we've had some breakdowns in human character that have led to some issues. Mm -hmm. um, to me, the biggest problem was the mayor shut down that discussion during the council meeting. Okay? That sort of thing has to be brought out into the discussion. And we got a mayor and a council who agreed with them because it was appealed and they, they voted it down. Did not want to talk about that possibility because, all right, it's embarrassing. Sure. But uh, we're talking about possible abuse of power, possible invasion of privacy, and we're simply saying let's find ways that we can have some effective oversight that has some transparency that builds some public trust into this system. Because you are kind of making some people uncomfortable. I hear people say, oh, these cameras. What do you mean they're looking at me? You know, mm -hmm. the question, are they tracking my speed? No, they're not, but. Um, but I think your question of oversight is spot on with respect to um, the current perceived lack of communication from the council, right? Because a lot of people are gonna think a lot of different things. And I'll be honest, I've interviewed a number of different candidates and they've articulated what the oversight is in a number of different ways. And so what that tells me is that there is no commonly understood truth about what, you know, what what sort of oversight we have on these. And so I, I think you're bringing up a good point. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, next, let's pivot a little bit to town development. Over the past term, we've seen job growth, some very interesting trends in the housing market, uh, and progress on the proposed development for Uptown Normal. In a sense, these things all seem interrelated as we look to the future. Uh, first question is more specific to housing. Uh, in your opinion, is the housing we are building in line with the salaries of the jobs being created? Think about Rivian, Ferraro, uh, some of the other companies that are getting moving here, and do we have enough affordable housing? So for the first question, are the salaries in line with the, uh, the housing? Uh, anecdotally, it seems to be because uh, Rivian is now employing over 6,000, nearly 7,000 people with, from what I hear, very well-paying jobs. Mm -hmm. 
And the last three developments have gone up, uh, have a lot of, um, you know, somewhat higher end homes. They're going for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. So is there a parity there? Seems to be mm-hmm. somewhat. Um, a lot of these are rentals, and some of them are sort of mixed developments that have a lot of the high end on one side, and some of the uh, more middle on the other side. So is there some parity there? Yes, but I, I'm not sure how crucial that is because it dovetails with the second question, do we have enough affordable housing? Um, to me, the best way to ensure that is to just look at the housing stock as a whole mm-hmm. because people are moving upwards in that regard. If you try and build affordable housing and you're subsidizing and you're working that low end, that's not sustainable in, in a regard because you have to support it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the developers come in, they have a cost uh, to build, they have a cost to maintain, and that sets rent, essentially. Um, so if it's going to be lower, you, you have to subsidize it. But what you can do on the other side is if you have a larger stock of housing overall, that drives prices down. Mm-hmm. All housing becomes more affordable at that point. So you have people that will that are in some of the lower housing markets can trade up because prices are now coming down a bit. That opens up the door on the bottom end of things. And so you're building housing without subsidizing it, and yet you're still having the same effect. Yeah. And you're moving people upwards the whole time. Mm-hmm. So the two dovetail in that regard. Um, you don't have to try and match salary to housing necessarily. What you have to do is make sure you've got an adequate housing market mm-hmm. so that things aren't in such high demand that prices are inflated and you are pricing people out near the bottom. If you have uh, a good, healthy real estate market and, and uh, adequate supply of housing, then people are going to move into those things and open up at the bottom for yeah. other people to enter. You know, we, um, My wife and I started as a family. We were renting a little apartment that we stayed there for seven years on West Normal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, dealing with rowdy neighbors and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's where we started. And so if there's an easier opportunity for someone to get out of that instead of seven years, but in five years and three years and move into their starter home, mm-hmm. because the people that were there have now, you know, gotten some equity and moved up to their next home. If you can drive that process, that's what's going to move everybody, lift all the boats at the same time. And you can do it in a way that doesn't require consistent subsidies that you have to keep putting a drain on taxpayers. For. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And so, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like you're somewhat in line with the way that we have been handling housing development here. I've, I've got to be honest. I mean, we, we built a house right at the beginning of COVID. And so I've seen insane amounts of housing growth but then again like we're looking to the future and there's a potential recession Um, however I think some of the decisions that we're hearing about like the infinity infill project Mm -hmm. those sound positive are you kind of in line with those yes if if there's a developer that wants to come in and make use of that property especially in an infill situation and they can make it work that's great that solves a lot of the issues Uh, again it's going to add stock to the housing in an infinity point it's it's at multiple levels right um, it is annexation, which means new property is coming onto the tax rolls, more money to Unit 5. Mm-hmm. People are like, oh, there's going to be more families. Well, there will be, but for every student, the state has to give them thousands of dollars more money. And because the property value is going to go way up once you develop it, that's going to provide a lot of extra income as well. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, next, let's talk a little bit about workers. So on the heels of the Workers' Right Amendment, um, I was thinking a lot about the town's support of businesses and and, and mainly like how, 
how broadly communicated that is, that the town supports business, small business, bringing business in from outside. So do you think that the town can support workers with the same energy it has uh, purported to support businesses for? They say they do, but I think they have a fairly poor record in that regard. Okay. Um, you know, there were protests about some of the people that were brought in for Rivian. Mm -hmm. They were promised one thing, the town uh, had no teeth to enforce something else. There were issues with uh, the town was um, shopping around for some insurance products and some wellness products. And there were local businesses that offer those services and those products that were passed over simply because staff wanted to do business with a downstate organization and they'd always use them. They even they had lower bids. Mm -hmm. you know. So in that regard, the town has a lot of room for improvement in terms of supporting local businesses and local workers. And one of the, the problems with some of these bigger developments, like a Trail East or something like that, is that the money is flowing out of the community. You're, the subsidies go to somebody who's based in Iowa, somebody who's based in Chicago, and then the rent does. Okay, so the town is spending thirty-five thousand plus a month in rent to Tartan up in Chicago. That right. money flows out of our community, so we want to have money as much as possible stay in the community. So if there's going to be a project that's going to have money spent on it, have those businesses that are local involved as much as possible. Mm -hmm. To me, that's something we should be pushing for. Yeah. Do you, do you think that we should change anything with the current process of accepting and reviewing bids with those or just kind of take a closer eye to those who are closer to home? I, I think the process is okay. We send things out for bid. We, you know, craft custom uh, project labor agreements or even development agreements. But for whatever reason, the decisions are being made to not enforce certain aspects or even not include them. So yeah. I don't think it's a procedural issue. I think it's just a matter of the people who are making the decisions are not valuing it as highly as they should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another, <laughs> another topic of human influence. I feel like we were just talking about that with the flock cameras. It's interesting how technology can help us only so much. So uh, next question about kind of town development would be with respect to Uptown Normal. Uh, in your opinion, should the expansion of the Uptown Normal project be dependent on the vacancy or, um, I don't want to say lack of success, of the previously created spaces? Um, I think the Uptown Normal project needs to be completely reviewed. Uptown Normal dates back to pre-Y2K. Okay, so go back before COVID, mm -hmm. before the crash of 2008, before the housing bubble, before the dot-com, before Y2K. That's when all of this started. There was a very different model of business and of community in place at the time. You know, and we've had some previous candidates uh, who have said, oh, you know, Uptown is a success by any measure. I'm going, well, you know, we're, we still owe 70 some million dollars, not including the interest. When it's all said and done, we will have spent $53 million in interest. $53 million out of this community gone, you know, was it worth it? Well, that's, that's a policy question. Yeah. Um, but let's look around, you know, the, the buildings haven't been able to sustain themselves. One uptown circle couldn't be built unless the town agreed to a 15 year lease at the most expensive office rental prices in downstate. The first floor is still unoccupied. Yeah. We've had, you know, a failed development for Trail East, possibly a second now for Trail East West. And we have empty spaces. Mary Ann's Diner's been open for a couple of years now. The parking garage on the north end never got developed. It's just a holding space with a dirt floor. So there is trouble actually getting the vision to fully become reality. Yeah. 
And so much has changed. The idea of a centralized, large, consolidated office space, which was what the Trail East model is, mm -hmm. we don't know how viable that is right. post-COVID. So I think that's just Uptown itself that needs to be rethought. Now, if you want to look at Uptown 2.0 and south of the tracks, if you're to execute that plan, you're looking at another huge round of bonding to make all of this happen. They're talking about a large anchor building, which for a long time was proposed as the library. Right. They want to tear down the existing police and parks and rec facility, which is a perfectly good building. It, mm -hmm. it was built in the 70s in that solid concrete style. It's, it's perfectly viable. They're doing some renovations in there now even. And you know, the one building they're talking about a $40, $50 million project for on top of the others. And now you have tens of millions of dollars to build government buildings. Mm -hmm. They don't generate any tax revenue. They don't generate economic activity. Right. That's not a plan I'm supportive of. So does it need to be rethought? The short answer, yes, absolutely mm -hmm. it does. Yeah, no, I appreciate that answer. Um, and do you think, so as you, you mentioned that the kind of anchor for the, um, for the Trail West expansion would be government buildings. Do you think that there is anything that the town is in need of that we should use as an anchor over there? Because it, right, it, it's, it is, I agree with you, it's interesting that we would hinge all of that development on a need for government buildings, to your exact point, because we would not be getting revenue for those. Yeah. And then I think what we are hearing is that when student groups you know, advocate for something like a grocery store or something like that, Again, this, this is, to me, the gap in communication where you're being told, no, you don't know what you need. We'll tell you what you need. And then it's going to be yeah. a government building that you're not even going to get to access. Yeah, that's the difference between <laughs> are we governing, are we directors, or are you trustees of the public right. will? Um, that's a whole other conversation, which I'd love to have with you. But um, it, it, the anchor building is south of the tracks, up yep. to 2.0. Trail mm -hmm. East West is on either side of Constitution um, to the north there by the Bill okay. Brady building, home fit, that sort of stuff. Um, Interesting that you brought up the grocery. You know, it would be nice to have something in, in town for that, but I don't see why this is a concerted effort to develop one deliberately, because there are spaces, right? Marianne's mm -hmm. Diner is unoccupied. It's on a prime corner. It's the closest spot to campus yeah. in terms of uptown. Uh, you've got, again, the underside of the, the parking garage, or CVS itself. There's nothing stopping them from carrying certain groceries. Lots of the dollar stores, even some, some gas stations, you could, they'll, they'll carry bread, milk, mm -hmm. eggs, fresh fruit, prepackaged sandwiches, grab-and-go type stuff. Yeah. Uh, what are the students looking for? Let's, let's explore that. Let's have a conversation about, okay, you say you need a grocery store. You know, um, do you need a full-blown Meyer or Walmart, or are you looking for specific things? What are they? Can they be carried? Can we approach some of the local vendors who are already here? Hey, you know, can you partner with some of our local farmers or some of our other suppliers yeah. um, and get some product in here? Can you set up an end cap mm -hmm. so that students can grab something healthy that's supporting a local business? Yeah. Or can we get a group that can take an existing space that is accessible and set one up? I mean, if, if it's such a great idea, it should be viable, right? Mm -hmm. So let's see if we can make that, uh, make that happen. Yeah, I think back to your point about iterative thinking, I, uh, I'm inspired very much by, I think it's uh, Common Ground or Common Ground in downtown Bloomington mm -hmm. uh, because they've got, you know, again, a lot of organic options, a lot of locally sourced, locally grown options, and that is not, uh, like, by default, that's not a grocery store type building. That building right. has been, you know, kind of like minimalistically retrofitted, almost, it almost has that pop-up type feel to it, but I think that's 
in my opinion, that's that's a great way to get something started and to gauge interest and to continue to iterate. Yeah, so let's let's find out what the students need. Are they do they need raw produce and racks of spices and mm -hmm. you know and, and bags of flowers so they're going home and doing their own cooking? Or do they want some healthy alternative to their meal plan yeah. that every now and then is a bit of change that they can, you know, grab something and have a nice meal or maybe, you know, one of those kit type things that you put together that have fresh ingredients. Yeah. Let's find out what the needs are. What is it that they really want? And then is there a way uh, to approach that? One last uh, time with that question, other things that they need, you know, there's some aspects of, of the Uptown 2.0 that are nice. And you talk about, well, the underpass seems to be going forward. They're going to build that grand plaza with mm -hmm. something else. It looks gorgeous. You know, well, park mm -hmm. spaces are, are amazing. And I'm all for redevelopment of the library. When I was in Philadelphia, our neighboring community, Ardmore, uh, underwent a three-year renovation of their library. Transformed the community. It was an amazing event. Uh, the way they approached it was they kept the services open out of a couple of trailers and construction office type mm -hmm. things. And you, you, know, you could reserve online, go and pick it up like a curbside. And everybody was like, we're all in this together. And the community banded together. And when it was done, they expanded into the new place. So um, I, I think you know, the existing library could use a renovation, but it can be done on site as well. I understand mm -hmm. there's asbestos in there, but that, there's ways to abate that as well. Um, whether it's worth that huge multi tens right. of millions of dollars investment south of the tracks, um, that's another question that I'm not so convinced on. Yeah, and I also think that, gosh, the last five years has only uh, increased the pace at which the library becomes a completely different thing than it used to function as, as a place for society, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's really an opportunity to leverage that space as, uh, as support for lower income folks who could use extra working spaces. Uh, there's opportunity for public outreach. There's opportunity for civic engagement. I see the libraries as really like the, the, the public sphere of the future. So if I'm hearing about library renovations and we're not having any of those conversations, that usually kind of perks my indicators of, yeah. let's think a little deeper about that. If you might, a couple more points on that. Yeah. Um, you're right, so there, when we first moved back here, I was actually a stay-at-home dad with our, with our youngest. And I tell you, you know, I, I hit both libraries all the time. Mm -hmm. We were there for story hour, we were there yeah. for playtime, we were using the puppets uh, all over there. And of course, you know, my children are now getting exposed to reading and literature and all those environments. Yeah. And that's great. And locally, uh, the library here in Normal, they have a 3D printing aspect to it. I've worked with the Bloomington Library now a couple of times. They've had students come to our makerspace at Wesleyan mm -hmm. to do some projects. And we've even had them over to the observatory. So again, as a focal point for the community, as a way of doing programming to bring students in, bring adults in, and uh, expose them to other things in the community, it's a great resource in that regard and would love to maximize that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I'm excited about that. All right. These last few questions are uh, sort of more conceptually focused, thinking about the, the council as an effective body uh, that is representative of our community. First one, uh, flat out, does it matter that such a small amount of people vote? Absolutely it does. And then how do you engage the non-voter demographic? I feel like you, Carl, and, and Stan are speaking right to that group. Yeah. The most effective way to uh, get people to vote is to go talk to them. Mm -hmm. You have to knock on their door. Um, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher. I've noticed a shift in the last six years, whether it's been for my campaigns or for other initiatives, um, the community is, seems less receptive. There's a lot more no thanks, there's a lot more you know, disinterest, and it's just, you know, you get the side eye from them as you're trying to talk and they're just waiting for you to finish. It's, mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm not sure what's driving that necessarily, but to me, what's the answer to the question? It's still the same. You need to get out there and talk to people and engage them in the process. Um, everybody talks about it. It's unfortunate. These are the elections that impact you the most, and we get the least turnout. That's been one of my goals from the get-go. You know, when I ran my first mayoral campaign, uh, I had three goals. The first one was to get the community, community aware of what was going on. People didn't know that we were $100 million in debt. Their jaws would drop whenever mm -hmm. they found out what was really going on. The second one was to increase voter turnout. We did that. You know, we went from having uh, 4,000 votes total now to over 8,000 votes in the municipal election. Makes it harder to get on the ballot. You've got to get more signatures, but that's fine. We need the people uh, voting. And the third one was to try and win. So I came really close on that one. Yeah, you, you came very close <laughs> All right, uh, uh, similar to the voter turnout question, uh, what is the message to voters who feel somewhat cynical about uh, this past year? Don't give up. Uh, if you have a feeling that it's beyond hope, that it doesn't make a difference, hopefully that first mayoral election proved that it, it can be close. It, it was seven votes at the end of the night. It was 11 votes by the end of the whole uh, recount process. Uh, there was a, a vote not too long ago in Peoria that was literally one vote. Yeah. Uh, there was one that ended in a tie a few years back. It was decided by a coin flip, uh, especially in a, in a small community. It matters. It really does. Yeah. And uh, for anybody who might be listening over in Bloomington where you have small wards, you know, a couple dozen votes is very common to be the difference out there. So absolutely, get involved, get, get in the process. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would say that, you know, your campaign and the campaign of folks who are kind of outside of the current um, acceptable Overton window of conversation have done an amazing job at bringing awareness to things that other people did not know about. Uh, regardless of what people's opinions are of those things, it's on them to do their own research and be educated. Um, but there's a lot of things that, you know, you mentioned a little earlier that just, they don't seem to get discussed as openly um, as maybe they could. Yeah. So. And, and I always told people, yeah, I've had some conversations where I've said, you know, honestly, you've asked me a couple of questions. Give me, I'm, I'm probably not your candidate, but I still want you to vote. Mm -hmm. Please go out and vote. Yeah. yeah, I love it. All right. Um, Responsible Cities Political Action Committee was created to push back against the rise of polarizing candidates. Uh, what, in your opinion, causes this type of polarization? And without it, are we a representative body? Uh, this question... I had the hardest time with because I disagree with the premise. Okay, please, let's dig in. Um, Responsible Cities was not created to push back against polarizing candidates. They were, they were created to keep the political elite in power. Okay. They didn't like how close I came in the mayoral election. They didn't like the fact that Stan Nord won out of a field of nine candidates and was the only one to carry a true majority. Yeah. He got more than 50% of the vote, nobody else did. Uh, and they banded together and said, well, we, we need to build a wall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, if, you, if you look at who is involved, Chris Coos, R.C. McBride, Julie Heil, pointed to the transit board, very active in the community, Mayor Harmon, mm -hmm. you know, the, the list goes on and on, Alan Sender, you know. And so when they send me a, a letter saying, we'd like to consider you for an interview for possible endorsement, I'm going... Who are you kidding? Right. I mean, who in their right mind would think that those people are going to come out in favor of me? So this facade of openness and even-handedness and impartiality just doesn't ring true. Mm -hmm. Now, can they be nonpartisan? In the traditional sense, yeah, they're not Democrat, Republican necessarily, although their makeup is overwhelmingly Democratic. Mm -hmm. 
But it doesn't have to be looked at in that regard. We have to look at which issues are the people yeah. you know, favoring. And in that regard, it's extremely partisan. You can run down that list. These are all the people who have held office, who fought for office, and who have appointed other people to all of the other positions. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want to hang on to. Yeah. Um, so in that regard, to me, those are the polarizing folks. That's, that was what I talked about in the last mayoral campaign, is a lot of the things that we do, it's not so much are they good or bad, it's the way we've gone about them. Mm -hmm. When we have projects that don't follow the rules that we've laid out, the dispensary is a good example, that polarizes the community. Yeah. When you have someone on the planning commission saying, well, you know, we're here, you're speaking, but we don't necessarily have to consider public opinion, which isn't true, but that's mm -hmm. polarizing to the community. When you violate the Open Meetings Act, I mean, Again, it's just ironic that these are the people talking about polarization when they're the ones promoting that in the community. Yeah. No, but, it's very interesting, especially, in, and this is something that I've been saying for a while now, it's like in a nonpartisan area, in a nonpartisan election like this, centrism or this kind of perceived status quo becomes a party in itself. Exactly. And over 20 years, as you coalesce power and learn to leverage power, um, it's natural and it it's not indicative of an individual being malicious. That's how power works, right? Yeah. I mean, and it, and it, honestly, it, it's a fear of mine. I haven't held mm -hmm. you know an office here in Normal. I did in, in Danvers, but you know, people who support my campaign, they're like, "Yeah, you get in there, and then we'll get everybody on our side." I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I want. I don't right. want it to swing completely the other way. Right. We need a balance. Yeah. That's the theme of this campaign: is that the community has a fairly even divide. Look at the last several elections. Mm -hmm. You know, they're close. A lot of people like this, and maybe it is polarized, okay? But the point is there's diverse, widely held views in the community. They're right. not reflected in the makeup of the council. Mm -hmm. The council doesn't share that diversity of thought or of conversation. That's unhealthy. Yes. And so we need to balance that. Um, and that's, that's not what uh, this group in particular is, is promoting. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. All right, um, so this one, this question kind of jumps back to, uh, to the, the, the space that you're working at at Illinois Wesleyan. Uh, do you think that the council is a place for creative thinking? And how would you inject some creative or innovative thinking into the town's agenda? Uh, absolutely, I think there is. We just talked about an example with uh, the grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's talk to the community. I've advocated a couple of times. You know, I opposed a, a, a contract they had with um, Cardno which was a company that was going to do environmental re, uh, resources work, specifically at Hidden Creek Nature Sanctuary. They wound up, you know, clearing out invasive honeysuckle, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, it, it, it's invasive. It's like dandelions. Yeah. comes in, yeah. it takes over. It leafs out in the spring before everything else. It, it stays green afterwards. It sends roots out for runners and all this, and it's just treacherous, and, and it destroys the native species that are there. So instead of spending $100,000, I said, you know, I, I serve on the Karst Conservancy of Illinois, which is a conservation board for cave conservation in southern Illinois. We own some property out there that we are actively managing the honeysuckle removal process. We go down there with shovels and, and rip this stuff out by hand and, and do inventories and work with the state's uh, Department of Natural Resources, do controlled burns. I said, there's ways that we could do this here locally without spending $100,000 mm -hmm. because you've got... Illinois State, you've got Illinois Wesleyan, they both have phenomenal biology departments, you have the Ecology Action Center, you've got an army of ecologically minded students. Yeah. We could band together and make this happen. There's all kinds of resources. U of I Extension is right here. 
And Kathleen Lorenz laughed that off. In the newspaper, she wrote an article saying, oh, he wants to use students to blah, 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 which she was just advocating for that recently in right. another project. So right. I find it ironic. But that's an example of one way of getting creative with the thinking. The business community here is fantastic. I mean, we're trying to promote this idea of entrepreneurship um, in a more centralized way. We've got pockets at ISU, at Wesleyan and things. But the mindset is, mindset is developing within the community. Of let's figure out a problem. Let's come up with solutions for it. And how can we bring that to bear quickly and iteratively? Um, and so we've got all these resources in town, but we're not listening to them because we're having short notice on meetings. We're having a restrictive public comment policy. We're only asking preferred stakeholders for their opinion. I think that's, we're, we're selling ourselves short. We've got so much here to offer, and we're not tapping into all that, that potential. Yeah, and I mean, to the point about being creative with engaging other areas of the community, I look to um, the Sunnyside Garden in, uh, in Bloomington, and I know the folks over there have done an amazing job with a space that had otherwise been forgotten. Uh, they've leveraged all of the groups, Ecology Action Center, UI yeah. Extension, all of the student exactly. groups. They've got a very robust volunteer system, uh, and they are providing large amounts of locally grown food for that immediate community, which was termed a food desert had those folks not been yeah. there. So. And, and now how much pride and local buy-in do you think you have for a project like that? Yeah. And the money is staying locally, right? We're not sending $100,000 out there. And you know, it turns out the job they did, they literally just clear cut. They came in with saws and just buzzed the place flat. And there's no follow-up either. So it's like, it, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a good, it's a good, good one worth calling out. Okay, last question. Uh, how should voters measure the effectiveness of a candidate? I think you've called out a number <laughs> of different things. So yeah, <laughs> give me the highlights. You don't have to start over. <laughs> to me, it comes down to, do they represent the people? Yeah. Uh, do they represent the people? I mean, let's look at uh, Ms. Lorenz again. You know, she comes out with her campaign announcement saying, well, I want to run because I have the time. Um, I still have, it's in, it's, it's in my heart. I have the will to do it. And I want to shape some projects and, 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 get back to governing. Mm -hmm. I don't hear any mention of representing the will of the people in this process. Yeah. The reason why we have low turnout in elections is because people have busy lives. They have enough on their plate. They don't want to be bothered with this stuff. They got to look into issues, figure out what's going on. I don't sell our electorate short. Okay? I've criticized people at GLT for, you know, say, oh, well, tips are confusing. I'm like, people understand them. Right. Don't talk down to your audience. All right, I'm getting off track. No, but, I think that's fair. Uh, to get back to it is that this is why we have our form of government. I mean, the Greek system, true democracy was, it's almost like the draft. You have a period, a year or two, where you're, all the men in the community are voting, mm -hmm. okay? And everybody comes and casts their vote on everything. Well, it's exhausting, yeah. okay? So we have a different form. We have a republic, and we elect representatives to go on our behalf so I don't have to worry about it. It's like hiring a lawyer. So I can sleep at night. It's mm -hmm. now their problem. We want to be free to do what we want, and we trust people to act on our behalf to look after our interests. That is a trustee. That's the position I'm running for. A board of directors has a very different feel. They're governing. They're making the decisions for you. Mm -hmm. And I do not see that as our form of government. But if you look at um, Ms. Lorenz, that's, uh, her take on it. Um, Karen Smith, I, I like Karen. She's very intelligent. She's very thoughtful. She does consider problems uh, deeply. But if you look at how she ran initially, 
uh, when she interviewed with WGLT, she was talking about, I wanna, I wanna look at the pace of development in this town. I wanna take another look at what we're doing for Uptown 2.0. I wanna check our spending. Has walked away from all of those things and has now been completely supported by the establishment. So in that regard, you know, I think she's kind of walked away from the people who actually did elect her, yeah. uh, who wanted change, who wanted representation for the people, and is now having her petition circulated by Mayor Coos, Sonia Reese, Kevin McCall, all those folks. Yeah. And finally, um, Andy Byers is the other uh, factor in here. Uh, he's been supported by the unions, a DC lobbyist, um, has, has come off as saying he was a Republican, but is now supported by all of these same Democrats, I'm going, I'm not sure uh, how much of a politician he is in that regard. And so to me, it comes back to, are we really representing the people? Yeah. Okay, I've stood up for the folks that circulated petitions, whether it was for the Uptown Mural, over 4,000 people signed it and the mm -hmm. town said, eh, we don't recognize that. Sorry, right. we're tearing it down. That's not representing the people. Over 2,000 people said, we would like to ask the question, can we have districts instead of being at large? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the classic example was, you know, I spent four hours total on that project getting signatures for people. Mm -hmm. But I bumped into Mayor Coos, and he's like, oh, what you got there? And I said, it's a petition for districting. He said, oh, I'm not signing that. I said, I don't expect you to. Yeah. That's the difference between us. Yeah. I think this is a question that the people want asked. It should be on the ballot. You think they should be ashamed for even asking the question. Yeah. No, and I, <laughs> I, think, I think that politicians, and I, I think all institutions can do a good job of shifting away from the source of the issue and, and distracting a particular audience. And I think that what made me most frustrated about that particular issue was that at first it was, you'll never get enough signatures, and then we got enough signatures. And then it was, well, arguably, you're not a smart enough voter for us to allow you to have this on the ballot. Yeah. So we're going to create a campaign that very explicitly calls out why there would be fiefdoms in every neighborhood, and I believe I'm quoting someone directly mm -hmm. on that one. Yep. Um, and it was fear-mongering to an extent that I can see why voters get deterred. Like as an individual who, who went through my neighborhood and got to meet a bunch of really diverse people, and we didn't talk about political things at all, we talked about things like speed humps and lights, and I don't think that that meant that me having a close representative to my neighborhood meant that I would completely ignore some of the other projects that were going on in the community. Um, but, but that particular issue as a voter, it really stuck out to me because it, it, it felt it like a slap in the face. It really did. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and I think, it, again, it sells people short in the community because it's saying they're not capable of acting locally and globally at the same time. For me, having the wards would be healthy because it does promote that sort of adversarial approach to things that we do tend to value in this country. Our legal system is based upon that. I'm gonna fight as hard as I can for my side and you're gonna fight as hard as you can for your side and that way everything comes out and eventually we render a decision. But at the same time, we all live in this community and there's nothing that stops people from looking at bigger projects and the greater good. People are perfectly capable of doing that. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think uh, the, the type of responsiveness that I think people who were in supportive of that were looking for were, you know, in my neighborhood, I love my neighborhood, I love where I live, but at the corner of, you know, Canyon Creek and Napa Lane, there's always going to be that giant hole in the ground that was caused by all those construction trucks, yeah. and as many times as I email the city and don't get responses on it, 
I have no leverage, right? I, I'm going to keep paying my taxes and I don't have representation. Yeah, it's almost like the Spider-Man meme where they're all pointing at each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Well, thanks. I really appreciate this conversation. This has been enlightening. Uh, best of luck in the campaign. Thank you. You want to leave anyone, you can plug anything that you've got coming up that you think people should know about or websites, whatever. Uh, yeah, I've got markforcouncil.com. I'm on Facebook, uh, Mark T for Council. Uh, you can call me anytime, 309-824-1304. Be happy to talk, text, uh, message me on Facebook, uh, send me an email. Um, come visit uh, at IWU. We've got a wonderful observatory that I manage over there. I'd love to show you some of the planets that are out right now. So. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I'm always into the stars. Thanks. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Best of luck.